welcome to Hit the Six. It's uh, another month, March. It's still locked down. It's still getting dark far too early. Uh, and it feels perhaps slightly like normal services resuming in the subcontinent as England rather unfortunately succumbed to a, a brisk defeat in the third test. Uh, Michael, we haven't spoken since before that test where I predicted and maybe a bit like Chris Silverwood thought as well, that our seamers would do well with a pink ball under the lights and we might give India a run for their money. Sadly, it didn't turn out that way. Uh, Michael, very quickly, your just initial thoughts on, on that loss. It was tough, tough viewing. It was tough viewing. It was frenetic. It was really unfortunate that all my meetings that day at work coincided with the Indian innings. And then they finished just in time to watch our batting in the second innings. That was sad. Um, but yeah, it was very quick. I'm sure we're going to talk about it in detail. I did go for a walk on Saturday morning because, um, you know, no cricket to watch. And it was sort of heartening, surprising to see in my local park. I didn't realise there were nets there and 10 and a rapidly growing crowd of 10 just um, netting and having no run up because they'd moved back the metal fencing that, you know, that was there to stop them netting and more people were joining every every minute. I wanted to join in, but so that was that was my weekend. Um, but yeah, no, it was it was sad. What, what were your thoughts, Rob? Well, it worked out perfectly for me. I took Wednesday and Thursday off work, was back at work on Friday. And um, so I watched the entire test match. Didn't my, Well, I almost didn't miss a ball. I missed three balls, which were after the, you know, they had the, the shortened tea break. And so um, I was actually speaking at church on the weekend, on Sunday. So I was practicing my talk. So it was 20 minutes long or 22 minutes long. So at the moment tea started, I muted the TV, went through my talk, it was next door to my wife, finished, came in, three balls gone, we were naught for two. I thought, ah, that hasn't started quite uh, as I'd hoped. So um, I think that pretty much summed up the game, to, to be honest. And to discuss it, we have, I'm not going to lie, um, a real hero of mine. Don't, don't want to, I know, he looks baffled. Um, I was asked by Simon Hughes, actually, who we had on the podcast recently, who is your favourite cricket commentator? And I said, this man, Daniel Norcross. It's great to have you with us. I know that you were expecting quite such a glamorous introduction, but, but how are you? I'm very well. You haven't got me mixed up with Jonathan Agnew, have you? No, uh, I that does, that does happen occasionally. <laughs> no, my my mum gets you two of you mixed up on the radio, but um, no, very much I, I don't. It's your whole, well, as we were talking about just before we started recording, your, as you put it, Richards to Rag story um, into cricket commentary that I think um, inspires me. But um, yeah, how, how are you all in all? Well, I'm okay. I, I, I have very similar uh, feelings, I think, to both of you about the last test match. It, it was more the disappointment that, having finally got a test match in winter on at 9.30 or 9 o'clock in the morning. Isn't that perfect? Because winter is always sleeplessness, exhaustion, like crotchetiness with, with the wife, my wife, at any rate. Um, and then I thought, well, oh, this would be fun. It'll take at least three and a half days out of lockdown. I was supposed to be working on the Saturday and Sunday, hilariously. Uh, and it, it wasn't happening. I did think everyone's reactions to it was well, not everyone's, but a lot of people's reactions to it were slightly over the top. And they were partly, I think, because of that disappointment that having the opportunity with free-to-air uh, television and the perfect time of day and being in lockdown, you'd have this captive audience that would be able to watch a thrilling game in a thrilling series, day-night test, imagining that it would suit England's bowlers. Uh, and, of course, it, it didn't. And I suppose it was predictable, but at the same time not, because every day-night test, really has favoured seam bowlers and we've all been wondering about you know who's going to be batting with a new ball and how winning the toss is so important because then on that first day 
if you've seen off the new ball under the normal skies, you get the opportunity to you know, keep going into lunch the following day. And then the, the, the side batting second is absolutely buggered. And it didn't work out like that at all because uh, of the fiendishness of the straight ball, uh, which was a, a thing. I think that actually not enough has been made of the ball itself, but I don't think a red ball will behave quite as extremely as, as the pink ball did on that. I think it skidded on a bit and India's spin bowlers bowl quicker. You know, you've only got to see how Joe Root took five for eight and Joe Root bowled quicker than England's off spinners and he just pings it into the pitch. He bowled, he bowled one of the balls of the century to get rid of Washington Sunder, bless him. And had Graham Swan bowled that ball, then you would hear about it every 10 minutes on his commentary from wherever he was in the world, be it T10 or test matches. And, and it'd, be, it'd be perfectly within his rights to do it. So uh, the pitch was not a good pitch. It would be crazy to say it's a good pitch because that's not what a good pitch looks like. But it made for some enthralling cricket for the short time it was on. And um, England's batters didn't have the technique that uh, Rohit Sharma had. They didn't use their feet enough to get to the pitch the ball. They didn't nullify what turn there was. They got spooked by the one that went straight on. Uh, there's been some really interesting stuff written by uh, Michael Atherton and Mark Butcher about how DRS also has made it especially difficult on pitches like that with a ball like that, because now the spinner can look to beat both the outside and the inside edge, which brings LBW into play far more. Uh, and we saw loads and loads of LBW, some of them marginal, uh, but you know, good officiating, good bowling, not great batting. We're just really disappointed because the game was over quickly and England lost, is the way I see it, and we move on. It's interesting what you say about uh, people being on like quite extreme reactions. I got, a, I got a phone call from a very irate father telling me that we should boycott... Was it, was it your irate father or just a irate Sorry, father? Sorry, yeah, I should, I should have made that a bit clearer. Um, I, only have one, I only have one father, and it was him calling me, uh, and he made it very... I mean, and it also wasn't... A, a member of the Catholic clergy either, giving me a, a call of Father Ted or something like that. Um, <laughs> Drink! <laughs> um, exactly. No, so from, from, from my father saying, we should, I mean, it, it slightly, it, it all gone to his head. I think he was very upset to have the test match end so quickly that we should be boycotting India and the IPLs as the opiate for the masses and they can keep it. Um, and then he segued remarkably into how um, the England rugby coach, Eddie Jones, is a, is a small man who only picked Owen Farrell as captain because he's less intelligent than him and easily malleable. This is all the space of five, ten minutes. I think, I'm like, Dad, Dad, mate, I think we didn't play, it wasn't a good pitch. We haven't played well. We've lost. It's a bit annoying, but I, but I reckon we can. Isn't sport wonderful that, that we do all lose our minds a little bit about it? And about part of it, I think, is because we project our fantasies onto it. You know, in, in real life, you can't really... I mean, I, I say that, but you can't really project your fantasy onto a seafood crepe, although I did the other day, and it came out absolutely brilliantly, but that's another story. Generally speaking, if you go for a walk around the park, it's the, the fantasies you have are just sort of mild daydreams, aren't they? Whereas when sport comes along, it's this great opportunity to fling yourself into an imagined world, and you frequently get massively disappointed. And we think that this is good for our character, actually, you know, um, We've always sort of looked rather sneeringly at Australians who were sort of born in 1980, because from the age of nine to the age of 25, they never lost. And so they don't really have any kind of backbone or character like we do, because we were constantly besieged by disappointment. So 
Um, I think it's marvellous, actually, that your father cares so much about it that he can become wildly irrational. Um, because that's really what sport does. It makes us all wildly irrational. That's why we love it, and that's why it's an entertainment. And that, to me, is the most important thing about sport, is to entertain. Uh, if it tips over into blind, ugly violence, as Alan Partridge would say, and we've had some incidences of that, actually, this week over the rugby of, of all things. Yeah, with... Both towards the, the much maligned Sonny McLaughlin and to Ellis Genge, and then it becomes... Uh, unsavoury and not great and we need to take a long hard look at ourselves but if it's just your dad chuntering because he's missed out on two days in front of the telly he'll get over it by the sound well, yeah he, he did get <laughs> over it he was far more mellow and measured when we then spoke again on on Saturday there you go so uh, yeah and he, he certainly thankfully is not the type to be um, hurling abuse on I don't think he's on social media um, but if he was he wouldn't be the type to be hurling abuse at um, Ellis Gange, Sonny McLaughlin or, or anyone else for that matter but that is that is the thing, isn't it? You do have to see the funny side. Like I actually, you know, as England collapse and it looks like every ball's gonna be a wicket, it's actually quite pleasing if they score a single rather than getting out. You know, there's no need to get upset. You know, I was able to stay fairly zen throughout because this is just what you expect, right? Like you go to India away, you expect to get pasted. All of those young kids watching on free to air for the first time for that first test were given a complete false picture. This isn't what normally happens. This is good for them. This is the point, Michael. This is really good for them because they've had that great hope and it's been dashed with terrible disappointment. And that basically is life, isn't it? And I, and I thought, as I was listening into the social, I wasn't on because I was, I was waiting to be on, <laughs> but not getting there. And I thought it was described beautifully by, uh, it might have been a combination of Phil Tufton and Henry Moran, who said that watching this game, watching England back especially, is like watching a man in stilettos walking down a pavement covered in ice. It's just, it, it's just you're just waiting, teetering on the brink of collapse, falling over on the toxics and having to be, you know, carted off the hospital. Uh, obviously, it's a different experience from when I was a youngster watching England collapse. It's normally against the West Indies, and then they really were carted off the hospital because it was, you know, vicious deliveries breaking. Mike Gatting's nose or detaching poor old Andy Lloyd's retina or things like that. This was a different kind of peril, but it was no less absorbing for it, was it? No, definitely. No. No. There's something quite fun as well about watching Coley and Sharma come out afterwards and say, oh, it's a good pitch. Okay. It's bad batting, you know, You're missing straight mm. balls. And, you know, you've got to laugh. It is funny. Yeah, well, they were bowled out for 145, weren't they? So, I mean, you know, if it's a good pitch, then nobody could bat. It wasn't a good pitch, and it was hard to bat. But yeah. somewhere, somewhere in there, I always think it's hilarious when people say it's terrible for Test cricket. I have no idea what's good for Test cricket. I don't. I, I've been watching it avidly for forty-seven years, and I have no idea what is good for Test cricket. That that was the shortest game in eighty-six years. So, what we should think about that is it's a massive outlier. Not that, oh my God, the attack of the vapours. This is the way cricket is going. It's going to be a disaster. It's the first time in 86 years. We should just take a deep breath. Yeah. Wait for the next one. You know, and, and there'll be England fans. They go, yeah, when we get them back here, there's going to be an inch of grass. It's going to be emerald green. And Jimmy Anderson's going to nibble it and swing it. And they won't stand a chance. And, you know, I, I will respectfully point out that Mohammed Shami and Jasper Bumrah and Umesh Yadav and Bhuvneshwar Kumar might also do the same thing. The fact is that India is an incredibly good cricket team 
probably the best cricket team in the world, although New Zealand might have something to say about that, uh, in a country with enormous resources and real passion for cricket. The fact that they care about it is why, you know, you get commentators in India being the way they are and why you get pitches prepared the way they are because it really, really matters to them. And uh, we, we can take a little look at that ourselves and think, well, wouldn't it be great if cricket really, really mattered to us as well? And, and things might be a little bit different if they were, or they might not, who knows? But, you know, <laughs> it's, it's something to ponder on. For sure. I, I certainly don't think it that test match spelled any sort of existential crisis for test cricket in and of itself. Um, as you said, it is a massive outlier. I've, people are saying, I've never seen a game like this before. Absolutely disgraceful. Cricket's dying. I, like, well, I think the key to that first <laughs> sentence, you've never seen a game like this before. You're probably not going to see another one for quite some time. Well, yeah, exactly. So the response should be, wow. I mean, it's, it's a bit like when football fans say, 7-6? That's just, that's terrible. That's a terrible game of football. Nobody could defend. Well, you know. All right, but there were 13 goals for those of us who just like to be entertained. <laughs> it was rather yeah. good fun. So we, we could stop being quite so convinced of what is right and what is not right for cricket and just sit back and think, well, there have been a load of people who've not watched cricket before, who are young, who will remember these test matches because they'll remember the first game and seeing them ratch up 580-odd and then see them not be able to get over 200 in the next four innings and think, this is a weird game, isn't it? I wonder what's going on here. And it'll be fascinating to them. Um, that's, I could talk about this all day, but I have a horrible feeling that everybody's talked about this game all day. And I, I sense we might actually be in agreement. Almost. Almost in ah, agreement. Okay. I just want to push back on one thing. So I, I got my calculator out uh, this morning, and I may have been slightly wrong. I was a bit slapdash. I didn't, on some innings, I carried over buys that were against spinners, and other ones I didn't. But basically, it was 256 for 28 against spin. And that's really bad. And granted, Ravi Ashwin is in the top five best spinners I've ever seen. Me and Michael sort of cricketing memory starting circa 2003, 2004. So, you know, Warren, and Ashwin are probably the top three spinners I've, you know, I've seen. So he's very good. This Axar Patel bloke looks decent. And certainly he looks decent with a pink ball that was skinning on. He bowls that quicker straight yeah. one, you know. So, but as you said, Joe Root five for eight. And, and even Luke, who's a good spinner, was causing a lot of problems to some very good batsmen on day two. It, it did feel like we could still, as much as it was an outlier, it was an interesting game of cricket. There's something to be said for that pitch was really substandard. I'm not really good enough. And if we see that again, there should be there should be some kind of consequences for the BCCI or the Ahmedabad groundsman or, or whatever. Well, that's a, that's, that is a, a, an understandable take. Um, what, what I would say is that it might be born slightly out of a real determination to reach the World Test Championship final. And there haven't been a lot of countries who've talked about the World Test Championship. There have not been a lot of journalists who have, certainly in England. And there was this sort of fleeting moment when England looked like, oh my goodness, they're in with a chance of actually qualifying for that final. And that's the only time, really, that British media has sort of taken it seriously. Or indeed, you might argue, the English team, because they walked off the pitch in the last game of the summer when they needed to take six Pakistani wickets, they'd just got a new ball. Um, 
but they didn't think it was really worth the extra half hour to see if they could get to the World Test Championship final. I don't blame them, by the way, because it's a bit in the horrendous bubbles all summer. But um, it makes you realise that India really want it. And if we worry about Test cricket, one of the things that ought to soothe our worries is the idea that India takes Test cricket really seriously. Because let's face it, there's, there's no point in cavilling about it. Uh, there's 1.2 billion Indians and they're the largest market and sport does tend to go where the largest markets are and is sustained by those markets. So if India likes test cricket, we're going to get to see more test cricket. Uh, I know that puts us in a little bit of a bind if you're an England fan, because does that mean that we're now cheering for India to win the next game? Because if England win, then Australia gets the World Test Championship and the World Test Championship could die if it was Australia against New Zealand in England. I mean, that's not going to be of massive worldwide interest, global interest. But if India was in it, India against New Zealand, then almost, you know, you've got a whole world wanting New Zealand to win. You've got India desperate to be world champions. It might revive Test cricket. It could be if it needs reviving. I, I don't actually believe that Test cricket's in a lot of trouble at the moment. There's an awful lot of it, and it's extremely good. Uh, great fun to watch whenever you see it. But if you are minded to be scared, then could that not soothe your furrowed brow ever so slightly? I mean, I certainly want India to win this last test because, well, COVID permitting, if there are crowds, I'm an MCC member, I do not want to be at Lords watching a World Test Championship final, which is an Antipodean takeover. I'll be there with a melon baller into my eyeball. So I, think it, out. I, I think it might be at the Aegeas Bowl, so I'm not sure. Oh, is, it, is that where it's going to be? Because it's well, that's, what, that's how I've heard, interestingly. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, regardless, though, I'm very keen for that not to be the case. And with much an India New Zealand final, that would be a good game. Enjoy mm. that. An Australian New Zealand final, I, I can't be getting on board with. So I think I do want India to win this last test from, from that point of view, at the very least. No, definitely. And I mean, is anyone expecting anything different pitch wise? I mean, it's obviously the same ground. Coley saying it's a good pitch with a big grin on his face I means it's going to be exactly the same pitch next time. I mean, then I, and I also would like India, New Zealand. I think that'd be a really interesting final. Especially because I think actually um, an English pitch might suit New Zealanders more than New Zealand pitches do. And they're very good on their own grounds, but often their curators make the pitches quite slow, quite low. Um, as they come to England, with a bit of luck, a bit of grass on there, Trent Bolt, Tim Southey's going to really test the Indians and uh, and the Indians themselves have got brilliant seam attack. So, I mean, I'd, I'd just love to commentate on it. I mean, the, when I did quite a lot of the World Cup last year, obviously, you know, your, uh, your, your big name talent like Aggers and uh, Simon Mann, you know, they're hogging most of the England game limelight, which meant that I got to see loads of Afghanistan, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, a um, little bit of India, New Zealand, and the joy of commentating a neutral match. Because hard as like, you, you want to be neutral when you commentate, of course you do. But the problem is, you know, you're, you're still brought up loving cricket and loving English cricket. So there's a part of you in there that really does want England to do well. Partly because everyone gets excited when England do well, so there's more buzz around cricket, but partly also because you just can't shift this, this thing that's sort of stuck in your DNA from the way you first watched the game. Um, and yet, when you get to see cricket dispassionately, uh, it's really thrilling. The, 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 the sort of sense of distance it gives you to, to really appreciate 
talent from elsewhere. And it just opens your mind to the wonders of cricket. Because being a sports fan is a strange thing, isn't it? I mean, a lot of them, a lot of them, a lot of us, shut down when it's like in football. Whatever your team is, it's extremely difficult to see the merits of a refereeing decision that goes against your team, even when it's blatantly obvious. Uh, it's also incredibly wounding if you're beaten. Um, it's much, much easier to watch if you don't sport Arsenal v Spurs. I mean, that's great fun because, you know, they can, I, ideally, there'll be sort of six sendings off in a calamitous five-all draw in which there are 10 own goals. <laughs> you can laugh and laugh if you're not an Arsenal or Tottenham fan. You know? um, and that's not why what's great about watching cricket. I mean, you, you, you do it for slightly more noble reasons, uh, but it is beautiful. Any neutral watching Arsenal gets quite a lot of entertainment most of the time. But I don't know about, uh, I'm not an Arsenal fan, but uh, <laughs> I'm an Aldershot fan, Aldershot Town FC. It's a, rare, it's a rare answer to the question. But I do, <laughs> I, I'm fond of Arsenal. But um, I don't know about you, I'm instantly tribal though. I'll go to any game, and even if it's I'm a neutral, I'll instantly pick a team. You know, <laughs> if I'm watching New Zealand Australia, I'm getting very into it from a New Zealand perspective, and it'll be the same New Zealand India. You know, it's I find it really hard to actually stay neutral in any situation. You can even turn up to a game, you know, you go to a random non-league game with your dad, and okay, I like the kit, I like the guys who are playing in green, I like green, and you instantly back them. You know, okay, I'm testing you, I'm testing you here, Sri Lanka, Bangladesh. Oh, Bangladesh. Bangladesh, yeah. I have what? a bang at the last World Cup. I was at Bangladesh, um, I think it was Afghanistan or Bangladesh, someone, and I got so into it that I went and bought a Bangladesh t shirt from the Oval Shop halfway through because I was surrounded by Bangladesh fans and they were chanting and it was brilliant. So I was okay, okay. West, West Indies, West Indies, New Zealand, surely. How can you choose between them? I Both so lovable. I, I go with West Indies. I've got I've got this thing against New Zealand, Daniel. I think <laughs> I think it's, you can't. It's like neutrality is it's so hard. No, just to be clear on New Zealand cricket, they're they're self righteous in their like we play cricket the right way. It always does my head in if anyone plays plays a sport the right way. Um, in fairness to them, I don't think they're being self righteous. I think what it is is you're being irritated because everybody's saying that they play it the right way. Whereas I've never seen Kate Williamson ever. Tell people, yeah. you know, I'll tell you who says they play it the right way. And that's Australians who've got this imaginary line over which they never cross, but everybody else does. That's that's what self-righteousness looks like. Well, Kay Williamson is just just thoroughly lovely chap, isn't yeah, he? He's it was, running a really lovely team. It, it was rather grating how well he took the, the scandalous World Cup final. <laughs> it was I, grating, was, yeah. I, was, I was getting rather annoyed. I was like, come on, mate, tell us what you really think. Stop stop being <laughs> so nice. Um, let's have a bit of humanity. It might be because he just is like that, you know. There's a, the horrible conclusion one might have to draw with Kane Williamson is that he's a genuinely wonderful man. I mean, the thing that comes across to me, and this might be slightly harsh with Kane Williamson, is he's clearly really nice, but he also, I think, he comes across a bit boring. Like he's just really good. He's always been really good, and he knows he's really good, and he's got nothing to lose. He's probably got, you know, he's very content with himself. And he never really shows any personality to me, but I love watching him. Absolutely love watching well, him bat. I mean, I suppose he's a little bit like Daphne in Scooby-Doo in that respect, you know. I mean, she's absolutely unimpeachable, never does anything wrong. But, you know, in a strange kind of way, I mean, Velma's way more attractive. She keeps on losing her glasses. She keeps, she keeps on solving the problem. Um, you know, she's got, she's got a brain that's active and moves. Uh, which is not to say that Kane Williamson doesn't, by the way. <laughs> I'll take that a very, very acute, rapid brain. But yeah, nice people, 
nice people don't always attract the love they should. Although Ben Fogel does. So, you know. Um, in- interesting, Daniel. Sorry to completely change um, subject, but please do. About 30 <laughs> seconds there, you've gone Kane Williamson to Daphne from Scooby Doo to Ben Fogel, which is quite an interesting meander through pop culture for someone who's from the UK. Which I, just before you came on, I just had a little peruse of your peruse of your website, and uh, someone in. I think it was a school report said that you're not going to fulfill your potential, but you're going to be great fun at a cocktail party. Is that kind of this conversation something you've always found very easy? And at what point in life did you think, right, actually, I, I need to stop whatever I'm doing and spend my entire life sitting down, have, having a fag, as you are at the moment, and talking about anything and, and everything, hopefully cricket? Well, I suppose that actually that none of them were conscious decisions. They never are. I mean... I, there must be some people out there who plan their lives meticulously and get what they want. Um, and they're probably a bit nice as well, actually, and because they do everything the right way. But I've never been or incredibly like ruthless. So they or incredibly, yeah, or incredibly, yeah, to get what they want. Yeah, Kane Williamson. Absolutely, but the root, but we, but we're interested in the ruthless, aren't we? So maybe, maybe it is Kane Williams. Um, I know none of it was a conscious decision. I've always been, I think. Um, uh, Diligent and lazy simultaneously. I'm diligent in seeking out company and speaking and talking with people about the things that that I really love. Not necessarily because I'm fascinated by them, but that I I love them. Um, and I've always enjoyed those kind of conversations. And it turns out that that was ideal for Test Match Special. But when I realised that it was a good idea to stop doing any of the conventional uh, jobs that I was doing, which were better paid, but um, not, they didn't suit me. I wasn't awfully good at them. And I was terribly bad at getting on the tube. And I was really bad at dealing with, you know, software programs to put project management stuff in, Gantt charts. I was much, much better in meetings. I love meetings, have meetings, delegate tasks, then invent another meeting and go and watch cricket in the pub, two or three miles away to be on the same side. That was the way I tended to do work. And I realised after the umpteenth redundancy in the umpteenth economic crash of 2008 that uh, I couldn't bear the idea of missing the Ashes series that was coming up in 2009 like I'd missed the 2005 one. I mean, I I didn't miss all of it because I'd invented those meetings, but I'd missed the bulk of it and being part of it. Uh, Because cricket had been a part of my life from the age of five or six, I suppose, uh, and the largest part of my life, but <laughs> I confess, it's a terrible confession, really, is only cricket. Uh, I thought, look, I've got a redundancy payment, and I don't want to miss the cricket, but I do need to convince the people around me, my family, that I'm doing something worthwhile, not just sitting in front of the cricket. So I invented, invented, I founded Test Match Sofa with some friends, um, who all fancied the idea of sitting down in front of the TV watching cricket, but talking about it and having other people listen. So obviously there's a degree of egomania there that's there in everybody broadcasting, in YouTube as well, making this podcast. We want people to hear what we've got to say. Yeah. And uh, and that's when, I, that's when I started doing it. And then circumstances basically made it possible for me to continue. Um, they were, they were quite sad circumstances in some ways. I've, I've mentioned it before. Both my parents died one after the other. And uh, 
suddenly within six months of each other, just after Test Match Safer started. And so I was sort of left with a very modest inheritance, an awful lot of grief, and only one thing that I was really enjoying doing, which was this crazy, absurd thing, really, where middle-aged friends of mine sat around drinking too much Stella or Pinot Grigio and shouting at the telly, shouting at Kevin Peterson getting caught at long on, hitting the ball into the wind. Unforgivable. Um, <laughs> things like that. And, and suddenly discovering that other people were listening and they were sending in ideas, which we didn't have, we weren't at the ground, sending in jingles. And you realise the amount of creativity there was out there, how many people love cricket and are infused by cricket. And suddenly it felt like the thing that I did at the weekends and with my dad, um, maybe play it and, and watch it with my dad, was actually really enjoyed and loved by so many people. And I, I didn't feel that I had to apologise for it anymore. And an oddly liberating thing about losing your parents is that you haven't got anybody, in my case, my mother, ringing up and saying, have you thought of becoming a teacher? So um, because there's no, nobody there to say that well-meaning but entirely crass thing, you just think, God, I think I'm going to try and do what I want to do. And, see where it takes me and obviously all the way through it you think this is absurd they're never going to take you on any people they take on a former England cricketers Ed Smith's doing ball by ball now there'll be, there'll be no one there's there'll be no lay people left and then you realize actually that's not true there's Simon Mann there and there's Alison Mitchell and you think hmm my god maybe maybe this is a sustainable way to live and um and so yes that was a sort of process by which it happened. And then when I got asked by Adam Mountford when I left Test Match Sofa, um, I sent a speculative and unlikely email because there hadn't been the best relations between Test Match Sofa and, and Test Match Special for a while. And Test Match Sofa was owned by the cricketer. Um, and yet he replied to me very quickly and said, Would you come on to do Surrey v Gloucestershire at the Oval on March the May or something? And I found out when I was on a holiday in Antibes. And this is the degree of, of egomania that, that is in me. <laughs> is that the, the first thing I thought of, I got in the shower and I started imagining my desert island discs. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm pleased that I'm pleased that you started imagining your desert island disc at that point. The fact I've already got mine laid out, including my, what my luxury item and book would be, suggests that I'm one step ahead of you there. Or the, well, that's true. Not, you, yeah, you you were. It took me till I was it took me till I was a deluded forty five year old <laughs> to come up with that. But yeah, it was that was uh, that was that was the the way it strung together, and. It was very obvious when I started doing it that I was really enjoying it. What wasn't obvious to me was whether I was any good at it. And I suppose the fact that of still of continuing to do it and having people tweet in and love Test Match Sofa and what have you, meant that you got to do all the practice that you needed. If you did, at times, 180 days a year of cricket, one year, and I was on for basically every one of them. And so I'd be doing 180 times sort of four and a half, five hours of broadcasting to another very big team. And over the course of doing that, you you obviously get quite adequate at it. <laughs> you, know, you, you sort of can't not, really. <laughs> uh, and it's it's a little bit like the kid in their bedroom that sings and sings and sings into a, uh, into a recorder and 
you know, amazingly enough, 10 years later, you discover they're really good at singing. Well, because they they did it over and over and over again. And uh, so I got I got lucky as well. And uh, and I got a I got a lot of support along the way. I got support from the BBC and from Aggers. And I got support from all the people that I did Test Match Sofa with. It's an ensemble thing. So you'd have five or six people at minimum a day. But of course, everyone had a job. So mm. we had a team of about 20. And for most of the time, we weren't getting paid at all. So, uh, yeah, I mean, all these, you don't, like I say, it's a very long-winded answer to your question, but um, you don't realise in one big bang, you get an awful lot of good fortune and an awful lot of assistance and support along the way. And then because of that, you have the confidence and the belief to keep going and to sustain it. And did you do a bit of um, guerrilla cricket as well? Daniel, because I know that yeah, did a little, yeah. came after Test Match Sofa, didn't it? Yeah, I did. Well, Guerrilla Cricket was essentially the people who were in Test Match Sofa, apart from me, but they were no longer owned by the cricketer. Mm. And uh, I guess before I was contracted, I sort of get a summer contract often with the BBC. Um, and so in the early days of having left Test Match Sofa, I went on Guerrilla Cricket. I think I went on dis- in disguise once with Guerrilla Mask, um, <laughs> rather peculiarly. And I probably did an appalling impression of Winston Churchill or Bruce Forsyth or something like that because essentially that was what the program was about it was about idiotic um, laughter and surreality but at the same time bringing you the news of cricket Mark Steele came on once and the comedian and uh, we let him do some ball by ball and he he suddenly decided to get into his head to imagine because he could see me asking for another glass of wine from the producer he goes another glass of wine and he said god can you imagine john arlett was on doing that you know oi oi bring me another claret actually no make it a spliff and roll it properly and uh, and he's played loud at the offside and there's no run and, <laughs> and the thing was he was actually commentating the ball that was what happened you know playing out yeah, the yeah, offside yeah. and there's no run then he continued in the style of john arlett and uh, and that's sort of what we were trying to do was to bring that childish surreality, but at the same time, keep it within the framework of an actual cricket broadcast. So if you were listening in, you would know what the score was and you would know how people were out and what the talking points were. Uh, it was hugely ambitious. And like a lot of those things, there were some days when it was the most fun I think I've ever had doing any broadcasting because you've got Andy Zaltzman and Mark Steele and Rory Brem that we had on and... Um, and suddenly it's just madness around you and just hilariously funny, which is what I always think of the cricket as, I suppose. I think of it as laughter and joy and being with friends. And when things go bad for your team, laughing at it, laughing at the, oh, here we go again. And, uh, you know, when, when a player falls over and it's inelegant and strangely amusing. And I, I can't get I can't get over that sort of childlike glee at it. And I can't, also get over the po-faced way in which so much of it is dealt with so to me it's funnier even now because I, I sort of have to be a bit more serious yeah. about what I'm saying and I am more serious because I you get to know the players a bit better you know how important it is for them you know, their livelihoods and all sorts of things so the seriousness of the game comes to you when you work sort of within it but at the same time you know when when Jeffrey would get really vexed about something inside. I'm just 
giggling like mad that a grown man's really, really upset about the lack of a third slip. <laughs> and, and he's right. I mean, he's right to me. He's right to me. But at the same time, the, the intensity of it inside makes me giggle a bit. The test that's just gone would be a prime example, wouldn't it? Yeah. Oh, crikey, yes. The, <laughs> that would have been joyful to work with him on that. But actually, it's quite funny. Um, and just quickly, before I'm aware you're on dinner duty, Daniel, so we can't hold you for too long. But um, oh, don't worry. I think the, I think the oven has only just gone on. I pre-made the cauliflower cheese with four different cheeses today: parmesan, gouda, gruyere, and matured cheddar, mixed with garlic, lemon juice, mustard, and horseradish. It is a sauce so divine you would not believe it. Don't, please don't tempt me, Daniel. I'm. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Huel, the it's, it's sort of no. meal replacement stuff. It's not oh, right. a protein shake, but a little bit different. It's kind of liquidized cardboard with a tiny bit of flavoring. Um, and I used to have it on the, well, how it all started actually was I, I started drinking it, kind of play cricket, open the bowling, and you'd pile up in some massive tea with a muffin and three or four egg mayo sandwiches. And you, then you got a bowl, like eight over spell or 10 over spell. I'm feeling, wow, like just feeling full and start feeling sick. And, so I realised the answer to the long days of cricket was because then I stopped eating tea and then I start feeling faint, which is obviously even worse idea. So I started having Huel at about if we were batting first with about 15 overs to go. And then that would have a little bit of tea, but not much, and then could play on a full stomach. Um, and from there, it's progressed into having it for breakfast, like meals every so often through my life. But because of lockdown, I stopped having it. And I've now got a bag of Huel to get through. Don't worry, there's a point to this story. Are you sponsored by Huel? <laughs> I, I, I'd, love to, I'd love to be. I'm good you know at... what, if Huel wanted to sponsor us, then, you know, and they wanted access to our regular 80 listeners, then, you know, we're... we're... Actually, can, I, can I quickly audition? Huel, it tastes a bit like cardboard, but it's unputdownable. Huel. For the fast bowler, Huel. I can do it. Yeah, fantastic. I need, I could, I need extracurricular gigs. Lockdown's been quite harsh on the pocket, you know. So, yeah, Huel. Well, this, I mean, this is a come and get me plea. Well, there we go. We'll, we'll put out the message. We'll make sure we tag them in the episode and give them the, the right timestamp so they can find when we spoke about their lovely product. Um, but the long and short of it is that the last bag of fuel I have, it expired in December. Um, but I need to get, but it hasn't really gone off. So, like, I just need to get through it. And so, what I'm doing this week is it's all I'm having. I had fuel for breakfast, I had fuel for lunch, and I'm about to have fuel for dinner. So hearing about your cauliflower cheese with multiple different... Oh, and, and, with, and with French fries afterwards, lovely, thin, well-cooked French fries, crispy, and then they pick up the unguents of the cheese sauce and deliver it perfectly into your mouth. See, this is one of the few benefits of lockdown. We actually have time to eat nicely and all of yeah. that. I can't... I also have bags of fuel left from <laughs> when you this? made me, from when you made me get it, probably Rob, and it's and it's been under my bed since I got it because it's horrible, and I, I I'm not going near it, and I can't believe you're putting yourself through it this week, to be honest. Yeah, well, it's I'm, I'm getting to the bottom of it, so I'm, it's also to knock off a little bit of lockdown three beer belly. Waste, waste yeah. not, waste not, want not, absolutely. Well, exactly, yeah, yeah. and I mean. You talk about lockdown being tight on the pocket. I'm aware of how difficult it's been for people who are in restaurants, apart from China Pearl, Chinese takeaway and Q, where I feel I've single-handedly been funding them through this lockdown to a week from there. And it's starting to show on the waistline. So we're, we're onto the shoals to try and cut that down as, as well. You are such a natural for product placement. Do you, do you realise? I mean, you've got a genuine future in broadcasting because, I mean, that's one of the things I, 
I, I'm not sure I'd be able to do without absolutely pissing myself laughing. I, I, um, you, you know, the, the DLF maximum, aside from the fact that it's not a maximum, but, you know, that it's sponsored. We did it once on Test Match Sofa. Um, and we've got Leon Restaurants, marvellous restaurant chain, Leon Restaurants. Yeah, I had I had uh, bacon, bacon and egg muffin from there yeah. on Sunday morning for breakfast. I can really recommend the fish finger wrap as well as other more healthy options. And <laughs> and um, I, I, I knew someone who worked there, uh, Henry's lovely man, and he uh, he agreed to sponsor us for one series or whatever. And so whenever the ball was hit before, it was a Leon restaurants for it. Looks good and it's great for you. And <laughs> we would say this tagline after every boundary. Um, and it was impossible not to crack up because it's just it gets sillier and sillier, especially the more and more you drink. And so <laughs> uh, I've always been scared. I mean, and luckily it's, it's very unlikely ever to happen to me, but of being asked to do TV for those tournaments where everything is sponsored. It's a marvelous bright O cover drive. We heard David Coward do it the other day. It's a bright O cover drive. It, it sounds a bit weird. Yeah, exactly. it's a bit. It's a bit like it's sort a of grandmother kind of quoting from the wire. It's a, it's a bit sort of strange. So, it's, I uh, yeah. I where that it. got taken to unacceptable levels was when I remember when it was a, a DLF maximum, and um, the IPL was Morley Morkel being hit for a, a six by Jacques Callis, uh, and Danny Morrison, the commentator, saying Jacques Callis has been DLF'd as a verb. Oh wow! I feel it's a next level of you know it suddenly appears in the Oxford Dictionary Word of the Year. To be DLF'd. Verbing an acronym is really brilliant. I mean, CIA, I mean, FBI. Yeah, that's superb. Yeah. I mean, people would have been, I dare say, ECB and DCCI, don't they? They'll be, it's, it's a, this is going to take on. Well, Danny, yeah. Mor- Danny Morrison is, though, you know, he's a trailblazer in these matters. And um, I, I look up to him with awe because I, I think I probably need to spend about five hours in a room with Danny and ask him how that. How how do how do you do it? How do you stay how do you stay focused on the DLF maximum? How do you verb it? You're right. Yeah, it's it's I will never forget that. You talk about legendary commentary moments, you know, sort of uh they think it's all <laughs> over. It is now, and by the barest of margins as England win the World Cup. And Danny Morrison saying he's been DLF'd. For me, that's right up there and I did, a, I did a documentary with Adam Collins last year called Calling the Shots in Lockdown. It was the most fantastically fun thing, I've, uh, certainly the most creative thing I've done in a very long time, uh, which was a whole history of cricket broadcasting from the very first game back in 1925, I think it was, in Australia all the way through to the present day. And, you know, we've got a lot of clips from a lot of commentators doing a lot of things and didn't get I didn't get Danny's DLF. Uh, that's that, that's I'm 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 heartbroken now. I think we've left. Maybe we need to do a, a kind of codicil of episode seven, the modern era. Yeah, of, of those yeah. things. Um, quickly, actually, on sorry, link to this, but link to the test series we were talking about earlier. What do you make of the world stream star sports commentary, which is seems to be a lot of the things you spoke about that maybe you find difficult. Um, it's quite boring it's quite dull they take it very seriously they're also biased beyond belief at times um what do you yeah how, how have you engaged with that from from your own sofa well i've got to say that to a degree the tv commentaries 
around the world, strangely, was a, one of the things that gave me the belief that we needed to do test match safely because I felt that uh, it was just former players who are very, very important. I'm not saying there shouldn't be any former players. There should be plenty of them. But it was only and exclusively older players. And I've been brought up with a very different mix from listening on the radio and to a degree on the TV, but, but less so. Uh, uh, now, as for what I think about that commentary team, I'd just point out the fact that they're obviously absolutely loved by their home country and by 1.2 billion Indians. And I think that you've got to, you've got to listen to every broadcast of everything and understand the context in which it takes place. It's for a particular audience, generally. I mean, you might argue that the world feed for the World Cup is for the, the world, but the cricketing world is vastly skewed in the direction of India and Pakistan. Uh, and so those kind of broadcasts inevitably are skewed to that listenership, as you'd expect them to be. And I dare say, you know, an Indian listening in would say that South African commentary and New Zealand commentary and Australian commentary for sure, and perhaps I'd say it about English commentary. Now, we, we think that English commentary is less biased, and I think it does come across that it isn't as biased, and I think that that's partly because it's made for a British audience that doesn't really like that sort of thing, doesn't really like that sort of noise. I don't think it's because they're morally better or they're making a better broadcast. I think our watchership wants that, and the producers are making that product. And in other parts of the, of the world, they want a different product. And those people who are tasked with making it are, I've got to say, making that product very well because they keep on being re-employed. Now, it isn't, to my ear, exactly how I, how I like to hear cricket commentary. But that might be because I am English. And so I'm sort of not biased towards, but I'm naturally going to like Sky commentary because Sky commentary is actually designed for people like me. So it's being made for people like me, you know. Um, so you, you end up in a kind of slightly circular argument in which uh, I say it, it comes as a bit of a surprise to English watchers watching this series on Channel 4 because they're taking that world feed and a lot of people don't actually ever get that feed. They get an English slant on what it is that they're seeing. And not having that has come as a bit of a shock. Which is no surprise, but um, but you know, I don't I don't think it's I don't think it's inherently a worse broadcast. I would, I would say that you've got to measure broadcast by what its what its audience wants. I must I must say I've actually quite enjoyed it. It's been quite a refreshing change. Like I find it quite funny, um, quite how one sided they are, and if they, there's no point getting upset about it, they're not going to suddenly start being really down the middle and fair, you know. So you just you're watching it. You're right. Daniel, I'm, I'm very used to watching Sky and what, listening to the same commentators. So it's been interesting to hear a completely different perspective. And I particularly like it when the third umpires had a bit of a howler and so they just don't show the replay. And then there's just absolutely no acknowledgement of it from the commentary team. <laughs> and if you're watching it and you missed it, you're not going to hear about it. And I particularly enjoy that. But I've been right with it. I mean, I wouldn't want it all the time, but I've not been like turning the volume down or anything like that. I, I want to push back against debates on, on this one. <laughs> there's an aspect to it where it feels like I'm listening to BCCI propaganda. And, you know, I, I get, I get, you know, we all get frustrated, but whenever our government or position of, it is, I think as you said, Dan, it's not something that flies too well with the British public, but any kind of sense of a, a loaded agenda or a really 
one-eyed take or something. We, we don't like it, it annoys us. But given BCCI is so powerful over cricket, and then you've got this, like the BCCI brigade full of the good and great of Indian cricket and broadcasting, spouting the official line over the airs to the world. It was nice hearing Mark Butcher speak truth to power for, for 20 minutes. But aside from that, it, that's kind of, if it was like, if it was completely independent of the most powerful cricketing national body in the world, yeah. but they were really biased, that would be one thing. But it feels like we're hearing, you know, from the horse's mouth, the one that feeds all of world cricket, they're part of the story. And I... I no, but are you, are, you just, are you just kicking back against what you believe is your imperialist entitlement? And uh, no longer being entirely in charge of cricket, because the MCC, and you, of which you are a member... No, no longer appears to be the the lodestar that that guides us all into the sunlit uplands. So that's a mixed metaphor for you <laughs> of cricketing perfection. Then um, is is that what the is that what the issue is? I don't know. I mean, look, uh, I, I, I I think I think that's it, a fair a fair pushback on a hundred percent, and I think it's wonderful in many ways that powering cricket has, has shifted, and as you said, it is. It's far more democratic in many ways, having the most popular markets, except the rules, because it keeps a lot more people happy. Because I, I use it as a throw of people are like, oh, I don't like cricket, it's boring. I was like, well, tell that to, you know, 2 billion people around the world. And the fact that 1.8 billion of those people live in Asia, across Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, Sri Lanka, whatever, is convenient to my argument, and it isn't so popular here. And so that's a good thing, but there's, there's still, there's something not quite right nonetheless oh, okay well, well let me, let me realistic thing the other other side almost which feels bcci becoming the an indian cricket could rule yeah. in the way that damages west indian cricket south african cricket and so on it might well because at the moment they're most interested obviously the bcci in, in the what's good for india uh now that's what the icc is there to try to mitigate against and um, my view has always been that the ICC has got to be there to make sure that you don't want to stifle the growth of cricket in India because it's a driving force and it's huge. It's just wonderful. You know, they, they do love cricket and we should be very happy about that. But at the same time, you want to make sure that that love doesn't, that their love for cricket doesn't disbenefit countries like New Zealand and Sri Lanka and the West Indies. And New Zealand have been coping admirably with it, it's got to be said. Um, you know, Pakistan's players not being able to go to the IPL, that's pretty harsh in a sort of global marketplace. So, yeah, there are things that are absolutely problematic. But I, I would say to you, uh, I have a slightly different perspective on the, on the commentary. Maybe because I'm a bit older, I don't know. But I was brought up with athletics commentators, starting with Roger Bannister breaking the four-minute mile. Now, for a start, the mile is an imperial measurement, but it's not really recognised in most of the world, certainly not in Europe. And, uh, you know, what, he's done a, a mile in under four minutes? What arbitrary nonsense is this? Oh, what the fuck is he talking about? Um, but apparently, it was a great example of, of British superiority. Being told at every Olympics that the blue ribboned events were the 800 metres and the 1500 metres, <laughs> because we happen to be dead good at middle distance running. Like middle distance running is, is so obviously superior to all other running. Well, actually, what you want to know is who's the fastest man on earth? Oh, is it a black man from America? We'd rather not really dwell on that until they sort of gradually do learn to dwell on it. 
you know, but certainly not at the expense yeah. of sailing, which as everybody what? knows, I mean, you know, people around the world were up all night to see if Ben Ainsley could make that fantastic comeback in the virtually impossible to watch sailing. No, they bloody weren't, you know. The Blue Ribbon Gymnastics event turns out to be whatever it is that Max Whitlock boy is suddenly good at. You know, it, it, we, we in Britain have a similarly skewed view. If you were American watching Olympic coverage, you'd be thinking, why are they spending so much bloody time on the, uh, on the skeleton? <laughs> the, women's, the women's skeleton. Nothing wrong with, you know, women's sport, but, you know, the, the, if, you, if you said to an American, what's, do you think you'll get to see the women's skeleton? Well, no, I'd imagine I'd have to go into like three different red button options to find that. But no, in Britain, it's front and centre because we've got very good women skeletoners and people like that. And so it's a broadcast that's made for its own audience, you know, and, and that's why I stand by that. That's what you get when you watch Indian cricket from Indian broadcasters. What I'd say, having watched the entire Beijing Olympics on Greek television, um, I can tell you that they, they were big for... Yeah, the wrestling, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. But, but there's something in that to like, you want to support your, your home athletes because it's the, the broadcast here. The one thing I'd say with the, the cricket broadcasting is because it's a world feed and because they've got separate star sports commentary in Hindi, which is the one that's actually watched by more of the Indian public, whether this one could provide a little bit more balance. On the flip side, it's against us. And I feel like we're, we're big enough to suck it up. And get hated on by you know i mean i i feel like our team our cricketing media i feel we can take it on the chin i, I don't watch indian world feed commentary of if they're playing maybe a smaller test nation or one with a little bit less clout what what that would be like would it be similarly fast or is there a bit of a let's stick it into england and well, that, you know it's funny you should say that because there is always it's very noticeable when you do test match special and uh, i don't think i'm telling tales out of school here but when england play uh, the West Indies or Sri Lanka or New Zealand, for example, it's a, it's a much, much, uh, not, not, it's not more gracious if I was, it's a, it's a lot less kind of ribby and bantery to the overseas commentator. When Australia come over, Jim Maxwell, it's, you know, open season on Jim. If, if England are winning, then, you know, we'll just like stick it to him. And he knows this will happen and he sure as hell sticks it back when it's the other way around and it's all done in the very loveliest way i have to say it's very very charming and, and totally enjoyable but you, you don't do that when you're playing against sri lanka i suppose you might do a little bit if you've got jeremy coney with you just because he's so brilliant a commentator and it's just quite fun um but you know probably not uh, so that does happen and this is slightly problematic i think to me actually that it speaks to this wider issue in cricket, the big three thing about India, Australia and England. And you'll find that commentators from those countries and they're playing each other, rid each other more and get more into it and become more adversarial. I don't know, but uh, not so much adversarial as, as, you know, into their own team and enjoying their own team success, I think. We always enjoy England success because of all the things I said before about how it's, you know, good for growing the game in the country and that's what you work in. But you enjoy it that much more when England are playing India and Australia. Now, that might seem like innocent fun, but and it is really, but does it speak to a, a wider issue that cricket has got? That it mustn't, in having learnt about expansion, brought in Afghanistan and Ireland, albeit very late, 
and got much better associate cricket than we've had for a very long time. I mean, really decent sides. And like Sandeep Lamachain, you know, playing in the IPL and the BBL and being good. And Rashid Khan being the most effective T20 spinner in the world. You know, all those things speak to great things about cricket's expansion. So we don't want to, we don't want to contract and make test cricket only about those three teams playing each other because that's when there's a bit of needle. And we think that the games are less important, less interesting, less marketable, uh, will make less money, basically. And that way you lose competition. So it's one of the reasons I go back to the World Test Championship. It's bad, but not bad. It's weirdly constructed. It's very difficult to explain to people. But I would love to see it revised and become an important part mm. of Test cricket because I think there'll be an appetite for it, especially if India win. So I, I, we've I, come I, back again, haven't we? Yeah, but I, but I think what you said there is uh, is very relevant because I heard Kevin Peterson say on TalkSport that given about the whole England rotating players in and out, that it's what really matters at the end of your career is how you've done away in India and away in Australia. That's what people remember. No one will care if you beat New Zealand in, a, in like a one-off test in England. You know, he said that mm. like directly, basically saying, I'd rather play in India and win that test match and play in the IPL or something and miss the World Test Championship final because that's what matters. Yeah, but he says, he says that now because we've, we've never had a World Test Championship final. And so it doesn't really seem like a thing. Like, like, actually, you know, the IPL didn't really seem like a massive thing when it first started. We were all laughing at, you know, there being teams that were half filled with barely capable, jobbing Indian first-class players inappropriate to, you know, T20 cricket. We were a bit wrong then, and we're massively wrong if we still stick to that view, you know, over a decade later. I think the point is that you want to, you get, you reach the World Test Championship final by winning those series away in India and Australia. And if your reward for that is to play in a World Cup final, then actually your attitude towards that game very much changes. Yeah. If we build that up and make it explicable, that's why we need the structure of it. And it's not started well, and it's been hampered, let's face it, by COVID. You know, lots of great cricketing initiatives have struggled massively in the last 12 months. And uh, they need to go back to the drawing board and they need to make it a bit more explicable. I've been a fan for years of every tour being uh, mandated as three tests, three one-day internationals and three T20s. And that's just the way it goes. So you go and you play three games in each format. And all of those contribute to a league. Now, if you want to play a five-test series, you can, but you have to stipulate that the first three games of the series are played according to the World Test Championship rules. That all goes into a league. And, uh, and at the end of that, you get, for me, semi-finalists and finalists. You can also, it gives you an idea of, you know, you can have a league structure for the ODIs and for the T20s. And it's explicable for people who are trying to understand cricket. You know, I, I grew up at a time when there was a lot of cricket, but I knew the schedule, mm. weirdly. I knew the Benson Hedges qualifying rounds of 55 over Cup were going to happen in late April, early May. I knew when the quarterfinals, semi-final, final were going to be. I knew when the first round of the Gillette Cup happened and like the FA Cup, I knew what weeks it would be on leading to a final. Um, I had a fairly good idea when the test matches were. We've got to get that structure back because if you're going to try to attract a new audience, you mustn't make when am I playing a question. So it's got, you've got to get to that point when there's an expectation. 
And that's how you get real engagement. Whereas if it comes as a surprise, how many how many T22s playing? Well, we've only played two in this one. Oh, right. How many ODIs? Five. I'm playing five. I'm playing five. That's weird. How many tests? It says two against Sri Lanka. But isn't it always three or, or is it five? You know, you've got you've got to you've got to help people. And we're not helping people. Uh, and that would be a way of helping. And I think it would be a way of giving structure to the game that we really obviously fanatically adore because it hasn't really been a big problem for us. We just kept on watching. <laughs> Yeah. Final, very final one, Dan, before we let you go. Just very quickly, do you want to tell us a little bit about your newly launched podcast? When I told Rob, you know, oh, we should check out his podcast, what did you say, Rob? It's becoming said, a very busy market. Well, it's the most saturated market in the world, this. I mean, as you said, there's egomania, me and Michael. I, we're not doing this podcast with the expectation of world domination, that it's going to become bigger than every other cricket podcast. We do it because we like talking about cricket. We'd be doing this on a Monday night anyway. Why not press record and invite on um, people like yourself who would love to talk a bit about the game with? But it, it does feel like there are... And it is, I also work in car insurance, another saturated market. There are a lot of brands out there. Mm. There are, yeah. Why, why do it? Well, I'll tell you what. Um, I vowed never to do a podcast unless there was a producer um, and at least two other people and that everybody did all the tech for me and that all I did was turn up to a Zoom meeting once a week and have WhatsApp conversations during the week about what we should talk about. You sound just like Michael. Because I'll be yeah. the one to away, get out the editing stuff, edit out all the bits, with, you know, stick it all together. That's up, it. Michael just swans around. That's, That's it. Standard. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I also said that I wouldn't do it unless we did have a kind of, you know, structure that I would, that we would agree beforehand, and then after that, go to it. And then uh, Toby, Toby Tarrant came to me, who I'd done some work with at Yahoo, uh, Yahoo Cricket. And we shut, we shut Yahoo Cricket down. Our, our show was apparently so dreadful that it was the, the last thing they ever made. I don't know if there's a direct corollary, but <laughs> uh, it was pretty much the last thing they made. And we, uh, he said, do you fancy doing a podcast with, with a cricketer? A, a bit like, he, said, he was envisaging, because everybody has to say, you know, what type of podcast, not going to be the same one. Said, Imagine like, sort of, like the Peter Crouch podcast with a cricketer. And it wasn't just because he said Peter Crouch, I thought of Stephen Finn, because he's tall, <laughs> gangly, and didn't play 100 matches for England, but played a lot and was a very, very fine player. Uh, it's also because I've worked a bit with Stephen, and he's a genuinely hilarious man who puts up with us, I think, laughing at him too much, really, because what have we done? <laughs> Absolutely nothing. But I'd, I'd, I'd said we need to get a cricketer who's able to understand what's funny about themselves. Um, and not everybody is able to do that. Uh, and successful people, it's even harder to do. And Stephen's extraordinary in that respect. He's got a terrific perspective on life. And he's got brilliant tales to tell. And he played with some of the finest players England's ever produced in one of their best ever teams. So we agreed. We said, yeah, let's do it. I wanted to call it Virat Kohli Ate My Hamster. And I was told that that was unacceptable because uh, Cody might uh, do a lawsuit. I said, that's ridiculous. And then they said, well, nobody knows the reference to Ate My Hamster, so I gave up. But they, I think they were, had a point, really. And <laughs> then um, Toby came up with uh, Zero Ducks Given. So the Zero Ducks Given podcast has been going now for three weeks. We record our fourth, I think, tomorrow. And uh, 
And the conversation's a little bit like this. You're right. What's the point in it? The difference is we've got Stephen Finn. Who will, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah, who, who will actually be right, whereas <laughs> Toby and I will sort of be... We'll, we'll uh, vacillate between being facetious and knowing something about cricket, in fairness, because we both absolutely adore it and uh, watch it inside out. So it's never research for us to know what's going on. Uh, we'll t- we talk about the burning issues of the day, as well as bananas and my hatred of um, aubergines. So it's, 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 wide, it's wide ranging. I urge everybody to listen to it. Obviously, I do. I've got one downloaded for my walk tomorrow. Um, Rob says I don't do anything, Daniel. I mainly... You know, book talents such as yourself. Yeah, he, he does procure. He does procure the guests. So I won't from that. And, he's and, far more shameless than me. He's willing to just cold call and cold email on, members of the public in a way that I'm less comfortable with. On that, I do a lot of cold calling, and I have messaged Stephen Finn, and um, he hasn't come back to me. So if you give him a nudge, that'd be uh, that'd be wonderful. I'll give him a nudge tomorrow, but you'll need to talk to him almost exclusively about Zero Ducks Give Podcast. Make sure he gets a good twenty minute plug in. That's absolutely fine. And press him on, on how much you would never have done it if he wasn't working with, with Daniel and Toby. Okay. So okay. that's that's what's you know given him the impetus. Um, we can agree to those terms, yeah. Yeah, well, there we go. Like, like, almost live contract. You'll edit, edit all that out, won't you, so that nobody's heard this. Yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, look, Daniel, the time has flown by. I haven't spoken to you about most of the things I wanted to talk to you about, but that's absolutely um, fun. I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, and enjoy your cauliflower cheese. Quickly from you, is it going to be 3-1 or could England pull something remarkable out of the bag in the last test? Well, it's funny you should say that because I was discussing this at Adam Collins only today. Uh, I imagine the pitch will be the same, pretty much. I think that the ball will behave a bit differently because it's a red ball. So uh, it'll be tougher when it's new and get a little bit easier to bat on after that. But because it's going to be extremely difficult, I think, that... England have a chance in a way that they didn't the last time they were in India. When they last went to India, it became increasingly obvious that pitches are going to be made where India could score 650 and England just would get exhausted out of the game, just, you know, bored off the park <laughs> until eventually the pitch disintegrated and they didn't stand a chance. Whereas if you make pitches that are a bit spicy, then, you know, anything can happen. Joe Root could get 100. Ben Stokes could keep hitting it and get lucky. Ollie Pope could actually work out his game. Um, I love Ollie Pope. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But, you know, he's obviously trying to work out a method. And, a bit scrambled. And a bit scrambled. But if he if he finds it, he's an exceptionally good player. Um, we saw bits of Zach Crawley. If he, can, if he can have worked all week with Jack Leach bowling a bit quicker to him to try and replicate Axel Patel up to a point... Um, and get over his problem with left arm spin because he seems to hit absolutely everything else brilliantly. Then England have a chance in a way that I didn't think they had a chance at the end of the last tour. So if the pitch is a bit more spicy, I think there's a chance. Uh, I don't think it'll happen though because I think it's a chance. So <laughs> one in five, one in six. But yeah. Yeah, that's that's why we that's why we're going to get up at four in the morning and watch it though, isn't it? Because that's bringing us right back to where we started. You project. The most the perfect world onto sport. You decide what do what do you want? What do I want out of to say? I want I want England to be 312 for four at the close of play on a turning track that's only getting worse. It, it could happen, couldn't it? And then you know you're awake at 3:30, sitting <laughs> in front of the telly and getting disappointed most of the time. But one in six times you're not, and then it's a brilliant, brilliant feeling. 
and you haven't wasted anything if it doesn't work out that way because you've watched the game you love. What a fitting and, well, hopefully prophetic way to end that it's going to be a wonderful few days of Test Cricket England remarkably put it back to 2-2, although that would mean an Australia-New Zealand yeah. Championship final. So. Such a downer. You have to bring such a downer to <laughs> not really hope for a draw, can you, on these pitches? I don't think it's well. not realistic. No, no, unless unless the George Davis' is innocent campaign comes back and digs up the pitch on the end of the first night, <laughs> then no. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Well, on, on that note, have a lovely evening. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been a thorough pleasure. It's always, as, as I said, you know, as broadcasters, as egomaniacs, there's nothing more fun than talking about yourself. So thank you for letting me talk about myself i'm sorry i talked so long that you didn't get your questions your all your questions in but um yeah let's do it again and good luck brilliant thank you thanks